Well, it is great to be here. Someone asked me if it uh, is almost surreal at this point. I have to say, no, it's not just the way that it happened. It's not surreal. It's almost though, standing up here is almost cathartic. You know, there's been so much anticipation over the last two or three months for my family and I to come here. And to be here finally is uh, it's just exciting. It's almost a relief. And we are thrilled to be here. Uh, believe me when I say that. And again, I want to echo what I said last night to those of you who were here and to those of you who were not. Uh, we want to say thank you. Thank you to the community here at Oak Ridge for uh, being such a welcoming and loving church to a family that you don't know, uh, largely. And just uh, the way that you've welcomed us is, um, it just speaks volumes to us about Christ working in you. Talk about, you will know, uh, they will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. And we have felt that um, exponentially here. And so we wanted to share that with you and say thank you uh, formally. My first address to you uh, as pastor here, I want to talk to you this morning about worship. You might as well kick a hornet's nest the first time here, huh? Talk about worship. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Psalm 24. Uh, Psalm 24, we're going to be camping out there in that short psalm this morning. I want to begin our, our time today just by reading a quote. A quote that's a little lengthy, but it's from someone uh, that you may recognize the name of. His name is A.W. Tozer. He was a 19th century theologian and pastor uh, from America. And he says this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most significant fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. See, as individual Christians and as a body, as Christians coming together, what we think of God is the bottleneck of the Christian life. It's the foundation on which the entire structure is built. If we have a weak foundation, the structure will be insecure. It will be immature. And so we have to attend to that foundation as a church body and as individual Christians. Our view of God is directly related to and seen in our response to him. We will respond to God out of what we think about him. So for example, you show me a Christian who loves to reach the lost. And I will show you a Christian that is absolutely convinced of God's mercy. You show me a church that is diligent in prayer, and I will show you a church that is convinced of the power and the providence of God. And it works the other way as well. If you show me a churchgoer that is largely apathetic of their personal pursuit of holiness, I will show you a churchgoer that really does not understand the perfection and the majesty of God. 
And if you show me a church that is generally unconcerned with the poor and the hungry and the widowed and the orphaned, I will show you a church that doesn't quite grasp God's mercy and his love. As Tozer suggested, the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. And I would suggest that nowhere is this more evident than right here. When we gather for corporate worship. If you want to know about a church, if you want to know what they think about God, then worship with them. You'll soon find out. You'll soon find out what they think about God. See, our, our worship as a church body can never rise above the high, the high water mark of our view of God. It just can't. That is the high water mark. If we, if we think little of God, we're not convinced that he's powerful, we're not convinced that he's as great as his word says, then our worship, no matter how sincere, will always be pathetic. And if we know little of God, if we're maybe a new believer that don't really understand his workings, his power, or maybe we're just uninterested in growing in our knowledge of God, if that's us, then our worship, no matter how earnest, will always be less than it could be. That's just the reality. And I want to worship God well. That has become an increasing passion of mine. I want to worship in a way that pleases him. And just having spent a week with you all, I am certain that you want to worship God well also. And so this morning, from this psalm, Psalm 24, I want to take steps together toward honing our worship of God. Toward honing it together. And from this short psalm, if you've turned there already, you'll see it's only ten verses long. We're going to be reminded of three beautiful truths about the God that we've come to worship this morning. Three beautiful truths about him. And because of that, three ways that we are to respond because of those truths about God. So basically, the question that we're looking at this morning is, is how are we to worship God in light of who he is? If he says he's like this, how are we to respond as his worshipers? And here's the first one. We worship as stewards, enjoying God's goodness in creation. You ever thought about that? When we come to worship him, we worship as stewards, enjoying God's goodness in creation. Look at the first two verses of that psalm. David says, The earth is the Lord's, and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So David here, who wrote the psalm, he begins with a declaration that there is nothing in existence, there is nothing in existence about which God does not claim absolute and total ownership. Nothing. He owns it all. From the atoms that make up the taste buds on your tongue to the stars in the Milky Way. He owns it all. From the, the wood that was used to build Noah's Ark to the wood that was used to build the cross that Christ hung on. He owns it all. And there is no partial ownership. There is no timeshares. It is all his. As he says in Exodus chapter 19 verse 5, all the earth is mine. It's mine. And yet he is good enough to share with us, isn't he? He gave his property to humanity to manage and to care for. We see in the very first chapter of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, God creates everything. And then in verse 28, he says to Adam and Eve, he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And in context, what that means is enjoy it, take care of it, make the most of it. 
At that moment, God was not passing the deed on to humanity, saying, here, it was once mine, but now is yours. No, no, he was saying, it's mine, but use it. Enjoy it. Be thrilled with it. That's a really hard truth for us, for people living in our culture, to get through our head. Because we live in a culture that likes to own things. We like to own, we like to collect, we like to hoard, right? This is my phone. This is my new car. It's my house. It's my family, right? And we rack up these things that, that we own. And the natural progression of thought with that ownership mentality is that which I own, I get to control. If I own it, I get to say what happens with it. You can't tell me what to do with my car. That's my car. Don't tell me how to raise my kids. They're mine. Don't tell me how to use my body, what I can and can't do with it. It's mine. Right? And so we see this owner mentality that has seeped into our culture, and yet it can be equally dangerous as a church when it seeps into our worship. This is my church. That's my spot in the sanctuary. That's my church. I sit there every week. Don't take my spot. Some knowing laughter. Some amens to that already. Hmm. You got to get here early. (laughs) That's my pastor, right? We have an ownership mentality at times that when it seeps into our worship, what can happen, again, that logical train of thought is then we develop preferences about worship that if they are not met, this is mine. If it does not live up to my expectations, there can be some dissension and some anger. We need to guard against that. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. That's a pretty wide net. All it contains. The reality is that you and I, we own nothing. And he owns everything. And when we understand this, we come to worship not as owners. We come to worship as stewards. As stewards. Enjoying God's goodness in creation. That he has said here, enjoy, thrive. I mean, what can a child offer a parent that is not the parents already, except for obedience and love? Maybe you've experienced this. Your child gives you a birthday gift or Christmas gift, and you open it, and, and you realize quickly that in their excitement to wrap this gift, they forgot to take the price tag off. Isn't it interesting that the price on that gift is the same amount that came out of your own account a month earlier? They don't give you anything that doesn't already belong to you. And the same when we come to worship God. We come to him not as owners, but as stewards, giving back to him what is already truly his. You think about this morning. You came here to church in a vehicle that is not yours. You are sitting with a family that is not yours. We just gave money to God that is not ours. In fact, oftentimes when you hear an offertory introduced, that the language used is very intentional. Father, we give back to you now a portion of what you have entrusted to us. It is not mine. Even the air in my lungs is on loan from the Almighty. Nothing is mine. It is all His. We are not owners, we are stewards, and we come to worship fully acknowledging that we are enjoying God's goodness in all that He's made and in all that He's allowed us to enjoy. And when we come to worship like that, that is worship fit for a king, for the king of kings. That's the kind of worship he demands, that he loves, 
We want to be worshipers like that. You see now how knowing something about God and keeping that in the forefront of our minds affects the way that we respond to him. We see that he owns everything and we own nothing, so we respond appropriately. Well, as we move on in in Psalm 24, we see a second example. Not only are we to worship as stewards, enjoying God's goodness in creation, but we also worship as sinners, experiencing God's grace in redemption. We worship as sinners, experiencing God's grace in redemption. This second section of Psalm 24, it begins with a question. In verse 3, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? And so David is basically saying, since God is who we just learned he is, he's created all things, he owns all things, he's holy, he's powerful, a logical question would be, who on earth can go before a God like that? Who can go into the presence of such a being? And he answers in verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. In other words, he who is pure in his actions and pure in his motives. Who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. So in other words, who can ascend into the presence of a God like this? He who is pure like God himself. That's who. What does this pure person get when they ascend into the presence of the Lord? Well, verse 5. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. So what do they get when this pure person ascends the holy hill and comes before the presence of the Lord? Blessings, righteousness, salvation, and become part of a generation that constantly seeks the Lord. That sounds pretty good to me. I don't know about you, but I want those things blessings from a God who owns everything? I mean, those have got to be good, right? I want those. I want righteousness. I want salvation. And all I have to do, according to Psalm 24, is get into the presence of the Lord. That can't be so hard. How high could that hill possibly be, right? I mean, I want those things, so I want to climb into his presence, but hmm, clean hands and a pure heart. That's the criteria. I mean, I'm a pretty good guy, but I'm not delusional enough to claim purity in those things, to claim perfection. And I would guess neither are you. See, the standard is right there. We know in our heart what the Bible tells us to be true, that all of us have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. We have all fallen short of that standard of of purity, of perfection, that is required to be in God's presence and therefore required to receive the blessings and the salvation and the righteousness And so we're barred from it because we do not meet the criteria to climb that holy hill and be in his presence to to get what we so desire. But someone did. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He did. He can. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, when Jesus had made the purification for sins, in other words, when he had died, that sacrificial atoning death on the cross was buried and rose again victoriously. When he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So not only did Jesus climb into the presence of God, but he sat down next to him. And we say, how did he do that? Clean hands and a pure heart. That's how. He was undefiled. He was perfect. First Peter chapter 2. Jesus committed no sin. He was pure. Nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And the Bible says that 
because of the person work of Jesus. If we trust in him, if we put our trust in his person, who he claimed to be, the son of God, and what the scriptures claim he did, died on the cross for our sin and rose again, defeating death. If we trust in him, then it's as though we've climbed that mountain with him. We get the righteousness and the salvation that David is talking about here in Psalm 24. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says that we may become the righteousness of God in him, Christ Jesus. So what happens is that when we trust in Christ, the righteousness of Christ, as he ascended that hill, it goes right on us. It's imputed to us. It's given to us. So when I put my trust in Christ, I get his righteousness, the righteousness that I don't deserve. And that's not all, the salvation as well. John three seventeen, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. You know, at a church like this, where the Bible's open, the gospel is proclaimed, we need to be very careful to never grow tired of reminding one another that we are sinners saved by grace. We can never take that for granted. We are sinners, every single one of us, saved by grace. We ascend that hill by absolute grace. We are people that because of our impure hands and hearts, we are unable to go into the Lord's presence and receive the blessings and the righteousness and the salvation. We just can't do it. Again, we live in a culture that's full of self-made people. You can do it. Pull yourself up for, for, by your bootstraps, right? And the Bible is very countercultural in that way. It says you can't. We can't. We can do nothing about it. And yet because of God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus, we experience that redemption. We experience all those good things through Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8 says it so beautifully. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, the impurity, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. So when we worship God, when we gather together like this, we worship as sinners, experiencing God's grace in redemption. And we never forget that. This is a a powerful, powerful moment. When I was, I think, in my third year of seminary, uh, Patricia and I had reached um, what we'll call new levels of financial instability. We were broke. And tuition was due, and we didn't know how we were going to pay rent, much less tuition. And Patricia, being the godly woman that she is, she had faith. She knew the Lord would come through. Um, I rode on her coattails. I remember going to the, uh, the student mailboxes one day around this time uh, to get back some papers um, that I had submitted. And in amidst the papers was a letter from the seminary informing me that myself and one other student on campus had been chosen by a generous donor to have their tuition paid. I read it a few times to make sure to check the student number, make sure it was in the right mailbox. Um, it had no qualifications, no explanation on why I was chosen. Um, so I was racking my brain. I knew it couldn't be my grade point average. That was off the table. It had to be something. I couldn't figure out why it was that I and this one other student were chosen. I still don't know, actually. But as I read the letter a third time, I, I realized that in addition to the announcement that my tuition had been paid, was an invitation to have lunch with this donor and his wife. And again, broke student, free lunch. I said, yeah, absolutely. I'm checking yes to that box. Um, now think for a moment. 
how do you suppose I prepared for that lunch to meet that donor? Do you think I rolled out of bed and went to meet him? I got off the treadmill, went there without showering? No, of course not. And when I went and met him for the first time, how do you think I greeted him? A high five? You know, tussle his hair and say, hey, thanks, money bags, for the gift? No, that's inappropriate. I wanted to show him respect. I dressed nicely. I went into him. And with tears in my eyes, I grabbed that guy's hand and I said, thank you. You know not what this meant to me and my family. You don't know what an answer to prayer you are. And if that's how I prepared and interacted with a man who gave me a few thousand dollars, how much more when I gather with God's people to come before the God who paid for all of my sins, who reconciled me to a holy God without whom I was lost for eternity? Do I come with an attitude of frivolity? With levity, with thoughtlessness, with superficiality? I'm afraid that's exactly what characterizes many church worship services nowadays. The whole thing is optional and casual and void of appropriate reverence and awe. Lord, protect us from that carelessness. Remind us, Father, that we are coming before a holy God as sinners experiencing his grace in redemption. May we come before him appropriately. When we pray as a church, may we pray with intentionality, full of gratitude and thoughtfulness. When we participate in the Lord's Supper, may we do so with our hearts full of awe and gratitude. When we sing, may we sing as pardoned prisoners. You don't know me that well yet, but that section, poor section over there, they got to know me a little bit today. I cannot sing at all. At all. I don't know if I just can't hear what's going on or what. In fact, my wife told me a number of years ago, it sounds like you're screaming all the time. I don't know if you hear what's going on. I don't know if you hear the music, but I'm just yelling. And so I apologize for that in advance. But when by God's grace I come to worship with the fact that I am a sinner, saved by grace in the forefront of our mind, you try and stop me from sinning or singing. You try to stop me from singing. It won't happen. Because I'm so full of thanksgiving for what God has done. I am convinced that there is a filter right here that God hears glorious melodies coming out of my mouth. And I cannot wait for my glorified voice. Cannot wait for it. But until then, I will scream, as my wife says. <laughs> May we sing as sinners redeemed. Who cares what it sounds like? See, again, how we think about God, it shapes the way we respond to him. It shapes the way that we come before him. May God help us to keep that in mind as well. And so I just ask you this morning to do a self-evaluation. How is it like I come to corporate worship? How do you approach this time? Do you come aware that you're a sinner? That you're a walking trophy of God's grace and redemption? When we do that, we are worshiping in a way that is fit for a king, for the king of kings. 
So we've seen that we're to worship from Psalm 24. We're to worship as stewards, enjoying God's goodness in creation, and as sinners experiencing God's grace and redemption. There's one more in our time remaining that I want to point out from this psalm. And that's that we worship as victors celebrating his glory and conquest. We celebrate this. We worship as victors celebrating his glory in conquest. Verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. David here is picturing the gates of Jerusalem closed and bowed down. And he's summing them. He's pleading with these gates, open up. Not only open up, but get bigger. You've got to expand because the king of glory is coming in. And as you stand, you are not big enough for his majesty to come through. Open up, he says. Please open up. Verse 8, he asks rhetorically, who is this king of glory? Or maybe it's the the guard on the top of the wall calling down. Who is this king of glory that you're talking about? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. He, he's Yahweh. He's, he's the king of glory because he's all-powerful and has, has won great victories over his enemies. He's unbeatable. He's a conqueror. And it's almost as though David gets carried away and gets excited as he often does in the Psalms and he repeats himself. He says in verse 9, Lift up your heads, O gates. And lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. It's a victory cry. Long live the king. Long live the king. Flip with me briefly to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. We see a very similar sense of anticipation in John, in John's vision here. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. John says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, hang on, where do you get the righteousness? That's only in the Lord's presence. How did you get there? In righteousness, he judges and wages war. He's a conqueror. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. He's a ruler of some sort. And and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. So now we know who it is. Who is the Word of God? John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. In verse 14, and the Word became flesh. So we're dealing with Jesus Christ. And his robe is dipped in blood. Verse 14, and the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, are following him on white horses. He has an army with him. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule with them. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, what what David was anticipating in, in Psalm 24... John is anticipating him while stranded on the island of Patmos, and we today join in that anticipation. That there is a time yet coming when the King of glory, the Word of God, Jesus Christ, will return with his army, and he will defeat evil in a grand 
expression of his glory, he will march through those gates in Jerusalem and set up his kingdom where he will rule forever and ever and ever. And we anticipate that along with the biblical authors. And we as Christians, we get to enjoy it. We get to experience his victory through him. Not because of anything we do. We're pitiful warriors. But because of the greatness of his son, Jesus Christ, we get to experience that victory vicariously through him. Paul knew this in 1 Corinthians 15. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we come to worship God like this, we come to worship as victors celebrating God's glory in conquest. We gather like this. It's almost a dress rehearsal for that time, that great day when he will come and we will celebrate his victory along with him. And until then, we wait and we say along with John in Revelation, come Lord Jesus, come. This is the cry of your people. Come, usher in your kingdom now please. For some of you here this morning, life's a grind. Life has been hard. And you have felt the effects of sin in your life, tearing at your life. How do we endure without hope, if that's you? How do we get through a less than ideal life without knowledge that one day he will return and right all wrongs. How do we do that? How do we get through this life without the hope that one day he will come and destroy evil and will set up a kingdom that is perfect? How do we do that? I don't know how people do that without hope. I don't know. And so when we come together, we celebrate in one voice. We carry each other's burdens. We help each other carry burdens by celebrating. One day, it will not always be like this. It will not always be like this. He will come and usher in this kingdom. And friends, if you've never experienced corporate worship where there's a hint of celebration, then I'm afraid that you might not know God all that well. There should be a hint of celebration in this time because he is coming, and this is our dress rehearsal for that time. The most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. What would people say if they came in and worshipped with us? What would they say? What would they say? Would they say, that's a people. They're anticipating something. I don't know what it is, but they're looking forward to something. These people don't seem to own anything. They hold things so... These people feel like they're sinners. Is that obvious from the way we worship? Our view of God shapes our worship of God, there's no doubt. And in Psalm 24 this morning, it reminds us of God's goodness in creation. It reminds us of his grace and redemption and his glory in conquest. And as we dwell on these truths and many others like them in Scripture, as we dwell on these truths, our worship will respond appropriately. It has to. We will enjoy him as stewards, not as owners, as stewards. We will experience him as the sinners we are, and we will celebrate him as victors. My prayer for our time together as a congregation, in the months, years, decades, God willing to come, we will grow together in our knowledge of God, our view of God. It will continue to rise, and with it, our ability to worship him in a powerful way, a way that the world cannot understand, but the world needs to know. It starts there. That's my prayer for us, that, that we will get to a place where we worship in such a way that God is pleased, that he is thrilled, that he accepts it, And he will continue to work in us and through us for his glory and his glory alone. I hope that that's your prayer as well. Let's pray together.